Brady Corbet is the man that I aspire to be. He acts with all of the best directors in the world, Lars von Trier, Michael Haneke, Mia Hansen-Love, as well as directing Jean-Paul Sartre's works, the guy that I did my PhD on, my, my intellectual man crush, which means that Brady Corbet is like the form of what a, a human should be. And, and I want to be him. I wish I had his life. I'm glad I have my face and my body because I think he's a shorty. That's cool, Brady. I still love you. I want to be your homie. Um, but I want your career in your life. So after we do this podcast on your film, Childhood of a Leader, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I love you, Brady, even though I kind of digged you earlier by calling you short and <laughs> ugly. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Siu, an independent filmmaker, photographer, as well as a guy who's detecting some major green-eyed monster on the other side of this microphone. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., and I am, man. I am uh, entirely jealous of Brady Corbett. And I just like to say his name, because I found out that it's not Corbett, and that he says Corbett, and I like the word Sorbet, so I feel like it just rolls off the tongue. So this is the last of our pre-rec episodes. Uh, as of after this, we will be back to hopefully regularly scheduled programming. Austin will be recording from a monastery, and I will be just back in London, because that's where I live. I don't go off to monasteries and... Hang out with monks. You can hang out with me if you want, man. More than welcome. Hey, just, just, well, you know, I, I sent out an offer to hang out with you on uh, over Christmas on Skype, and you just, uh, you know, you just, uh, you just didn't, you, you weren't interested. I couldn't swing out. I was saving all of my mojo for the monks, man. So gonna get, it, it's, I, I just, I imagine you guys are gonna get some mad. We're shit gonna out there. get crazy. I mean, you know, wine came from monasteries back in the day, so, and it's not like this is an evangelical you know, church camp or something like that. I think I'm going to get a little crazy with these Catholic monks. This is going to get crunk. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get crunk as we... Crunk up all in that monastery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As we uh, do charity and shit for <laughs> the surrounding villages, just wander around drunk preaching the gospel. He's been acting out of it. Hey! That's only a little boy. He didn't actually hurt anyone, did he? I'm sorry, Mama. Why would you want to hurt anyone? Do you like it here? Why don't you lead us in a prayer, my love? No. Hold your hand up. Tu t'es en colère contre quelqu'un? Wouldn't you like to make some friends? He's spying on us. He didn't hear us. He's been upset with me lately. No! You can allow a child to run this household. I am your father, and you will show some respect. One, two, three. Put the boys straight. I want him how he used to be. You're still a little girl. I know what's good for my son. Yes, I'm aware. This kind of brutality can be pursued back to biblical times. What is it? 
un joli petit minois. The tragedy is not that one man has the courage to be evil, but that so many have not the courage to be good. All right, so this week we're going to be talking about the childhood of a leader. It is a uh, pretty recent 2015 drama film written, uh, well, I, could, I should say adapted and directed and produced by Brady Corbet, formerly Brady Corbett. I don't know if he ever actually was called Corbett, but in my mind, who you might know from films like Funny Games or Melancholia. And um, I know him as the lead of uh, the 2004 film Thunderbirds. He, Thunderbirds. Yeah. Oh, really? He was the he was the lead in Thunderbirds in 2004. 2004. He must have yeah. been like 12. Uh, I think he was like like 14 or <laughs> yeah. something like that, like 13 or 14. Yeah. I mean, it was a kid's movie. I don't even know what it, I never seen it. Oh, Thunderbirds! You know, well, you don't you don't know what Thunderbirds? I know. Is? Like the I, yeah, like, I remember what they were. The, 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 the puppets, yeah. and they had the, yeah, well, they did a live-action version of them, oh. um, directed by Jonathan Thrakes of uh, Star Trek Next Generation, oh. um, and, uh, and yeah, and he was in it, and it was fucking awful. Oh, was it? And I went to see it, and I went to see it because my boy Bill Paxton was in it. <laughs> well, maybe that's what happened with Corbet's career. He was like, hey, I'm in this, like, pretty shitty kids movie, so from now on, I'm only going to do prestige art house, piece, art, art house he pieces. He also played the brother in 13. Oh, that's right, which was a pretty important film in my childhood because I was actually in acting classes with Nikki Reed and Evan Rachel Wood when I was, like, between 17 and 19 um, with Andrew McGarrion, and I remember that they were, like, they were like the it pupils, them and um, Jonathan Tucker, who was in like the Black Donnellys and the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Remember him? He was the and he was in uh, the show Kingdom. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. He was uh, just more recently until it just recently got canceled. Sorry, Frank Grillo. He in, and he was in this and he was in this movie that I saw when I was a teenager called A Hundred Girls. Oh, I never saw it, but so the guys that were like uh, like the stars in our this particular acting class, it was Andrew McGarrion was the acting coach, and he would have like posters of his students' films on the walls. So like Ball in the House was a film that Jonathan was in. Um, uh, what is it, 100 Girls or 1,000 Girls? 100 Girls. Yeah, that was in it. 100 Girls. And then he did the one with uh, Tilda Swinton, I think. Um Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the was it called the the dark side? Uh, it's called dark the deep deep ocean end. The deep end. Deep end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah with, the deep with, end, was yeah. it Jason? Not Jason Isaacs. Um, no, the guy from ER. The the Croatian guy from ER was in it as well. Yeah, and then I think the dude from Sweet Home Alabama, the love interest, wasn't he in it too? Uh oh yeah, Josh Lucas. That's the guy. Um anyway, um so uh, Brady Corbet, he's he's done a lot of like fantastic work as an actor with with literally some of the top directors in the world and if you were listening to our last podcast Kier made reference to the fact that he kind of like moved to Europe and um became like an American expat I mean I guess he lives in New York now too but who kind of I don't know he has this really interesting career that he sort of has circumvented the the typical American machine for actors uh, that are kind of like seeking fame and shit. You know, he's not doing like television shows and he's not doing like the rom-coms and things like that. So he kind of... Well, he's also, he's like weirdly kind of a famous actor despite the fact he's actually been in surprisingly little. Like... Yeah. Because he had like, he had this sort of breakout thing where he was in, 
He said he had his one big studio thing he's ever done, which was Thunderbirds when he was a kid. Yeah. Um, then that same year he was in Mysterious Skin, which is oh, kind yeah. of much more kind of like what we think about him as. And then he doesn't do anything for four years aside. I think he's in like six episodes of like 24 or something like that. And then basically shows up again in the re- the American remake of Funny Games. Yeah. Uh, or the English language remake of Funny Games. Then again, doesn't show up in anything again pretty much till Martha Marcy May Marlene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melancholia. Then does Simon Killer. Which um, you really liked Simon Killer, he, right? Yeah, and then he's like... And then he pretty much just cameos and stuff. Like, he's <laughs> kind of barely in Clouds of Silves Maria. He's kind of barely in Eden. Um, I think he's... I don't think he's that big a part in Force Majeure, is he? Uh, no, not huge. No. And he get he's kind of like Saint Laurent. He's kind of again like a, a, a cameo. He's like he just he's like a weirdly a guy who seems to have become like incredibly famous as like this indie Euro, like this American who acts in all of these European films, yeah. but actually isn't almost never plays like very big parts in them. Yeah, and like the, again he pops up in while we're young and in a sort of small part. It's like. It's like it's 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 like his career baffles me in so many ways. Cool. Um, All right, coming back in. All right, what were you saying? You were finishing up well, with his career. His, his career is weird, is what you were saying. It just it's like I I don't get it. Like it's like oh, yeah. it's almost like he never really actually had a breakout role, and yet he's got so much cred. It's like. And he just seems to know all of these people and just like also he's like a guy who seems to be incredibly successful even though he never seems to play like much like a main part in anything. He's always kind of like either a small supporting role or basically a cameo. And it's almost like he's cameoing without ever having like been like a big breakout actor of any sort. Yeah, I wonder what his what his deal is. I wonder like if that's kind of just what he gets or if that's by design. I just like it just seems like he runs in all the right circles and just like everybody knows it. Yeah, and I so almost wonder just... if like cuz he did Hanukkah's film, right? And so from yeah. then on he's kind of like, "All right, well, if we need an American to be in a European director's film, we call this guy." And so then and... you get all these people that are like, "Hey, we have a role for an American. We can call Brady Corbet." <laughs> but it's like at the same time though, he's also like He's he's also like seems to be able to just um, jump into all of these. Di- it's like it's like again the fact, but it's like this weird thing. Okay, so when I was watching Eden and it's Mia Hansen Love and she uh, and, and Brady Corbett shows up as as the American guy. I'm like, of course it's fucking Brady Corbett. It's like Greta Gerwig is the American girl and Brady Corbett is the American guy. I'm like that just that just makes sense. And again, I don't know why. I don't know how he's ended up in this role. I don't know how he's gotten in this position. Yeah, I don't either, but um I would love to be the next Brady even though apparently I'm older than him cuz he's in his late 20s. So Yeah, and then like you know, again, he's like so he's in like Simon Killer. He's uh, part of like because Antonio Campos. He's kind of also in that crew with the director of um, of Martha Marcy May Marlene, and they all kind of like roll together. So it's kind of like so Brady Corbett just seems to be in that crew of people as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean he's found himself like a really nice little little niche. I wonder, I hope it can last, you know? I mean, obviously he's making enough money to make a living and he's able to secure financing to direct his his films. Hopefully he can continue to do it. It's a really interesting career and I really dig it actually. 
Um, I really like I, I feel like he – and of course whenever I hear someone that's doing these types of films and that is exploring like, fuck, you don't just adapt a Jean-Paul Sartre short story into a movie unless you have some sort of like intellectual and artistic sensibility that I'm going to be kind of uh, – that I'm going to gravitate towards. But so I kind of think of him as being sort of more artsy, New York, <laughs> Brooklyn-y kind of – art culture, cultured kind of individual, and the Hollywood kind of I want to just make movies and and be famous sort of mentality just seems to escape him, which I'm totally cool with. I dig it. I dig it. Like, do your thing, man. So so that's kind of a little bit about him. Um, this film, it's called Childhood of a Leader. Like I said, it's an adaptation of a short story by Jean-Paul Sartre, which actually is a short story that I have not read, uh, to my shame, but my work has mostly been on Sartre's um, philosophical stuff, but... Uh, I kind of want to go back now and check out what this is, but the the book was published, or the short story was published in 1939, um, and the film uh, came out in 2015, and it basically chronicles the, um, the, the upbringing of a child that would eventually become a fascist leader. So uh, we're in the setting of post-World War One. it's about 1919, and this child uh, is um, the boy. Is Prescott uh, is his name? The boy. He. Oh shit! Hold on. All right, this is coming back in. Hello, hello, coming back in. All right, so the boy Prescott. He um, is an American boy. His father is played by Liam Cunningham, and his mother is played by. Uh, Bernice Bejot of artist fame. And basically, it is the tale of this young boy's authoritarian parents and uh, a sort of tumultuous upbringing and his sort of acting out as his father uh, is an American who is engaged or embroiled in the middle of ne- negotiating the Treaty of Versailles to end the conflict of World War One. And the resentments that build up throughout this young child's upbringing ultimately condition him to become a fascist leader. Now, we know from the outset that he's going to become a fascist leader. So this is less like some sort of surprise, like, oh, what's going to happen to this young boy? It's, uh, it's sort of understood that he's going to become this way. Now, if you don't know this story, then it might not be uh, as known, but for someone like myself, you know the ending, so you kind of know that he's going to become this fascist leader. And if you read the synopses, it tells you um, that this is like the childhood of a fascist, a, a, a would-be fascist leader. And um, so it, it it's less of a sort of like psychoanalysis than it is a sort of like what we would call like a phenomenological reading. It's it's less of um, sort of justifying that here are these traumatic experiences that he went through and his parents are to blame, although there could be a psychoanalytic reading. But it's much more about like sort of just charting this young boy's sort of outbursts in conflict with his parents. And um, then at the same time, Robert Pattinson has a small part who plays um, who plays the uh, who plays the uh, He's a journalist, isn't he? Yeah, and he's like the right. He's like like a a good friend of the mother and the father. Very, he's like a trusted confidant. Friend. I feel like well, the, feel the end implies yeah. he's a very very good friend. Yeah, a very good friend of the mother. Um, but he's a he's a really good friend of the father. He's kind of like a confidant. He's involved in these negotiations, and um, 
And then, of course, we also see that uh, the father and the mother have their own tensions. They don't have a loving relationship. The father's much older. Um, he's doing his work, and he's brought his family to this this house out in this place that's away from home. And so the mother kind of is more of a companion piece than anything else. Um, and uh, so the father doesn't give her any attention. They don't have any sort of intimacy or anything in their relationship. And basically how the film ends is the film ends with young Prescott growing up um, and becoming Robert Pattinson. <laughs> um, and so basically what happens is as he grows up, he just looks uh, exactly like Robert Pattinson because it is it is Robert Pattinson basically playing the grown-up Prescott, the implication being that, um, that, uh, that Robert Pattinson's character – um, young, Charles Marker had been having an affair with the mother and that actually the boy isn't the son of the father, but he is the son of, uh, Charles Marker, Robert Pattinson. Um, um yeah. So could we, so could we, um, could we try doing this without the video? Cause it keeps cutting in and out. Um, so yep. maybe if we do it without the video, it's just less streaming power it might, uh, Okay, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the sort of gist of the story of what ends up happening. Um, this film isn't what I would call, like, a really plotty film. Like, let's say the last two films that we've done that were, like, you know, five acts or episodic uh, explorations of training for the Vietnam War. This, it does have, you know, different you know, plot points. Like there's a point. this definitely fits more into the feel of, like, art film. Like, it feels much more like yeah. art cinema that you're going for here. Yeah, I mean, there is a moment that kind of, or, or there, there is, um, there is like a subplot where Stacy Martin of um, *Nymphomaniac* fame comes in to play the tutor that is, um, is the young boy's French tutor, and so she comes in to kind of teach him uh, on a daily basis, and then he ends up having like a little crush on her, and he and stares at he her can't. nipple through her shirt. He, he does for a very yeah. long time. He desires her. Um, so that's obviously an issue, and that creates some tension, of course, then when he doesn't get what he wants, he wants her affection, and obviously he can't get that, and so that's going to create um, an element of resentment that he probably harbors that leads to him becoming this fascist leader. And I think the implication is that he kind of becomes Hitler, right? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, I think you could... Not, not literally, not literally. I think there's an element to but... which it's like, insert fascist leader here. I think it's broad <laughs> yeah. enough that it's kind of like... <clears throat> Because, I mean, the age the age doesn't make sense for him being Hitler because Hitler was, you know, fought in World War One. You know, so, I'm, I mean, I, th I think, you know, in terms of the actual fascist leaders of the 30s, 40s, he's too young to have been any of right. those leaders. And I think I, I think the reason for making him young is obviously and setting it within the time period of the Treaty of Versailles is obviously the Treaty of Versailles was a very big part of what would later become the impetus for World War Two. Um, right. You know, so I, I think, you know, it, it's it's theming it within this time period of kind of gen uh, of 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 kind of revenge and harsh harsh punishment and and people, mm. you know, wanting to feel vindicated by um, wrecking um, Germany and sort of making them pay. And I think that obviously has very obvious implications to the idea of the birth of fascism. So it makes sense that you, mm. if you're talking about the birth of this fascist leader, that you would set it in a point which essentially gives birth to fascism. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So what did you think, Kier? I know this is kind of a, an artsy fartsy kind of film. Did you uh, did you dig it? Do you dig do you dig Brady's directorial debut? I mean, I I, I like the direction quite a lot. I liked um, I, I I thought the film had a very confident visual style to it, and I really appreciated that, especially given the fact that I. <coughs> Especially given the fact that I've been watching, like, a bunch of BBC, you know, sort of uh, TV dramas which are just really badly directed. Like, I don't know what it right. is the BBC is doing, but seriously, they're like, it, you know, I, I don't know if it's some kind of, like, um, you know, if, if there's just a system that everyone gets put into and they have to sort of churn out. But it's, it's, it's kind of amazing to me how incompetently and poorly directed so many of their dramas are. And it seems to me the way it's done is they put the actors in and then they just shoot around whatever staging they've done. And it's just, and it seems really quick and cheap and shitty. And so to see something that was actually really designed and really sort of thought out, um, you know, I really appreciated that. I really, I liked the use of long takes. I just thought, I thought, it's a very, very confident uh, visual, you know, sort of film, and uh, so I, I like that element of it. I'm, I'm not totally sure I actually found what the film had to say particularly deep. I'm not really sure I, I got mm. very involved in um, the, the, the conceptual thoughts going on underneath the surface because there was a little point to me where the kid just always seemed like a little shit, and I'm not really totally sure how much the things that it reckons with as reasons for him eventually becoming this fascist leader really seemed actually like it justified the end, if you know what I mean. And I don't know, mm. perhaps, again, I'm giving it a very surface-level reading. I don't, I've not read uh, the, Sartre, the, 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 the story it's based off of, so I don't know right. kind of what um, his what what sort of uh, philosophical ideas he's grappling with with within it. But you know, ultimately, I'm just like, okay, so this kid came from a fairly well-to-do family. He's got some daddy issues, and um, he's got uh, a hot teacher who can't act very well. Who's um, who's teaching him? <laughs> I mean, I I'm just gonna throw this out there. Stacy Martin can't act. This is the first movie I've ever seen that bothered to put her in, even though she doesn't take her clothes off. And I was just kind of like, she she's again, she just can't act. Like her entire her entire thing seemed to be that she got roles because she was willing to take her clothes off and this one and somebody cast her in somewhere she didn't have to take her clothes off so she became completely pointless hey stacy girl i feel you kira only cast me in roles when he can have me take my clothes off too so um i, I get you i get you it's the burden that we bear hey, for hey austin you're a better, being I, loose. I, I, i'll say this you're a better actress than stacy martin <laughs> <laughs> I'm a better actress. You're a better actress than Stacey Martin, yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, yeah, okay, so I haven't read the short story either. But if I can extrapolate based on my No, do so. I want to I want to hear you I want to hear you go in deep on this cuz I'm I'm I felt like I I'm not sure I got more than a surface reading out of this. Yeah, uh so I'm, you know, really familiar with Sartre's philosophical bent and this was published in 1939 so he has a little bit of a shift in his philosophical thinking or let's say a, a, a progression um, that sometimes people view as a shift but this would be the early phase if you will of Sartre where he is uh, full-fledged in his development of what would later become uh, existentialism right um, and he was probably the foremost public intellectual in the world in the early middle part of the 20th century. 
And his philosophical idea could really be boiled down to um, a little pithy mantra that he pronounced in his essay from 1947 called Existentialism is a Humanism, where he says that existence precedes essence. And so what he means by that is that, uh, first of all, there is no God because God is the sort of bearer of essences. So first humans just simply exist and only then uh, are essences derived from your actions. The implication of that is that you then are responsible for your actions and you're not responsible to any um, essential ideas or any essential creator that has any sort of dictating um, uh, control or demands over you, which means that you are completely free. And for Sartre, this is both terrifying but also exhilarating. So he talks about how you are condemned to be free, which sounds contradictory, but it's this idea that you are thrown into this condition of freedom that you then have to live. You have to live your freedom. And then what he wants to say is not only then are you free, and not only is that your sort of like condition that you must reckon with, but in reckoning with that, you also then need to feel that freedom. Uh, which for him produces a sense of nausea, which he wrote a novel called Nausea, or a sense of like anxiety, existential anxiety, or, or um, uh, it's sometimes it's called, or kind of agony, something along those lines. Um, and the reason is because you feel the weight of all of your choices, which means that every choice you make, you are entirely responsible for. And not only that, but every choice you don't make in your choosing other decisions, you're also responsible for. So feel that and take responsibility for that. So this idea of responsibility becomes also important for his ethics, which he actually never finished his book on ethics, but it's there in his sort of ethical formulation. So if I could do the deep reading of this book from the philosophical perspective, I think what is going on is that, yeah, we get a little bit of a sort of like psychoanalytic, like this is why the boy grows up to be an authoritarian uh, megalomaniac fascist leader. I think that's there, you know, he didn't get the love he wanted from his father, his father was a bit of a dick, he and his mother had tension, he didn't get his, uh, his sex, or the object of his sexual desire, um, things like that, sure, that could breed the resentment, but I think even more than that, what we see is that, um, that the boy isn't just an innocent victim, and that he still bears responsibility for being a, a dickhead boy and for being then a megalomaniac leader, that he still bears that responsibility. He, he needs to own that responsibility in his freedom, right? That just because he had these shitty circumstances, that doesn't justify. It might explain, you know, kind of some of the conditions that led to this outcome, but it doesn't justify it. It doesn't excuse him for becoming a megalomaniac. Now, of course, that's not, that's not there, maybe necessarily, except in subtext, if you understand, I think, what Sartre might be doing. But I think that is something that we get there. And then simultaneously, that means that all the cast members, the mother, the father, um, Charles Marker, played by Robert Pattinson, they're all individually responsible as well, even though they might try to blame other people, right? Like the mother and the father are blaming each other and all these various tensions that emerge. But no, you need to own up to your, your own... Um, your own participation in the outcomes that have uh, have manifest themselves. So I think that's kind of the deep read. And so if that is the deeper read of this, then I think what this film then becomes is sort of, it's more of just like introducing us to the childhood of a would-be, you know, maniacal fascist leader rather than trying to justify it and excuse it somehow or or give some sort of validation to the fact that, oh, you know, he just had a shitty childhood. Well, which, and, you and know, presumably other things happened to him outside of this one year when he was like 11 that, uh, right. that, that contributed to him becoming a fascist leader. 
Yeah, I know you you could yeah, exactly. You couldn't just be like, well, he had one shitty year at 11 and then he became fucking but It's Hitler. always like but at the same time, <laughs> his year is not that shitty. Like his circumstances are not that difficult. I mean, you know, again, like Hitler had much more difficult circumstances in his life than this kid had. And that's that's the thing that I find I find weird about it to a certain extent because I'm trying to figure out is the film suggesting that he was always this kind of shitty asshole of a kid? Because, I mean, to begin with, he's kind of throwing rocks at, like, priests and being a douchebag to begin with. Right. And he's kind of always a dick to his mother. He's kind of like – he's got, like, a kind of Damien vibe to him to a certain extent. He was mm. just born to be the devil. And so you're just kind of like – I'm like, is that the film's point that he's just always been a dickhead? And that because mm. again, I mean, I'm I'm kind of left with this feeling of like, there's plenty of people who had authoritarian parents who don't grow up to be fascist leaders, right? Yeah, and his I mother think... seems quite nice. I'm being, if I'm being honest, <laughs> she she's trying her damnedest. She's too, trying you know? her damnedest. Um, I think you're right. I think it would probably be an overreach to try to say that. You know, anyone who has authoritarian parents is going to become a fascist. But um, so I think that's an overreach. I don't know if that's what the film is trying to to say or what what the story is trying to say. I'm, I'm, I, I really I'm just, just think... to, I'm, I suppose I'm just trying to figure this out a little bit because you know, yeah. I I think you know I knew where the film was going, but I feel right. like if I didn't know where the film was going, I feel in the last five minutes I'd be like, oh, and he's a fascist leader now. Okay, why? You know, it's like. <laughs> Right. I'm, I'm not – and I, I – I, there's there's elements that I'm picking up on this. So I get – again, I get the setting of Versailles. That makes sense to me, you know? Yeah. And certainly I can see the idea of that he has these parents who are torn between two worlds. You've got his mother who's German. You've got his father who's American. And those are, you know, two people on opposite sides of – the power divide. I mean, there's always been the, I, there's always, there was always the, um, I don't know if this is ever true or if this was just like an urban legend or something, but like Hitler had some kind of Jewish heritage, you know? So there's this idea of being torn between worlds and being kind of, Mm. um, feeling like an outsider. So almost overcompensating through some sort of nationalist, you know, sort of, um, pride. Um, I, I and and I and you know again you you have these minor frustrations but I mean you know every young man has had the girl he <laughs> kind of fancied and then uh, but 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 got rejected from I mean it's not really that's not a that's not a unique thing either you know and I, I I don't know I'm kind of left feeling like I think there's a lot of ideas in it that I can kind of grapple onto but that's why i'm saying that ultimately my reading on this feels very shallow because i'm just not seeing a deeper meaning in in what the film's trying to try trying to bring forth and it doesn't help too that i do think this film has some very very pretentious trappings like i do (laughs) i like for instance i like how it sets it up with this world war um, this World War One footage, you know, I like the use of stock footage mm. in it. Um, I like, um, you know, but I mean, everything. The closing credits feel so. The, the credits feel so try hard in terms of trying to make this seem really important and austere, and then. I just also this kind of separation into the parts one, <coughs> like tantrum one, tantrum two, and these sort of, I it, it just feels very try hard to me, and that's the yeah, point I mean, where this starts to feel like a student film. He's definitely spent a lot of time with European filmmakers. You can tell, 
right? Um, see, for me, I like those sort of things. I like those, like you called them, with the, the art house trappings. Um, I, I really enjoy those things. I think that if we're going to try to read this as making some sort of grand statement about, like, this is how a fascist leader becomes a fascist leader, and then supposedly this is the recipe, you know, first ingredient, authoritarian parents, second ingredient, you're split between two worlds, third ingredient, maybe you got a different baby daddy than the guy that you think is your daddy, you know, I, I don't think that that's what the film is saying. If it is, then it's obviously problematic. For me, I think the thing that's interesting about the film is I don't like to watch it. And I've seen this a couple times now, and I, I really love this movie. Mm. I, don't, I don't like to think of it as trying to psychoanalyze and say, you know, the, the Freudian thing where it's like, let's go back to the childhood and let's find the traumatic event that made you what you and are. And as we've talked about Rat on this before, I am not a fan of backstory as a sort of easy explainer of things. So it's – it's so right. I'm, I'm, And I'm – and I, I – watching this film, I – I when I'm sitting here afterwards, I'm kind of like, if this film was honestly trying to do that, then it would be a terrible movie. And I just didn't think that's <laughs> right. And I don't think that's what this movie is trying to go for. So I'm trying to understand a little bit what the movie is trying to go for. Yeah, maybe. And this is the way I look at it. So maybe what it's doing is it's taking this idea. We know the end. We know this guy's going to become a fascist rather than saying ah, let's see why he became a fascist. Maybe it's, let's just look at the childhood of someone that we know would become a fascist. Not to try to justify it, but just simply to see who was this particular person. Because it's childhood of a leader, not childhood of the leader or childhood of Hitler. So there is some sort of ambiguity there. But let's look at this particular guy and let's see what his childhood was like. And that's it. And that's it. And that's all we're supposed to look at. We're, I don't... I don't feel as comfortable trying to extrapolate from that either universal principles like all fascists must behave a certain way. And I don't feel as comfortable trying to say, well, now let's justify that this traumatic event or that traumatic event or these traumatic events are what made him a fascist. But simply let's just spend some time with someone who's going to be a despicable person and let's see if we can look at that person's childhood through a different lens. And does that change how we look at this childhood knowing that these are just basic tantrums that any child has or that every child has? Like you said, he's not a horrible child compared to other children, but does it change the way that we view this childhood's, uh, the outbursts of this childhood based on the fact that we know he would become a fascist at well, some it's, point? It's interesting. And that's what I well, think. Well, it's interesting too because looking at the synopsis of the short story uh, Childhood of a Leader, um, it actually seems very, very different from the movie. That From what I've heard, it's very It, it seems yeah. to actually directly far more be about uh, an identity crisis within someone who is a fascist, kind of trying to grapple with, you know, what their own personal feelings and journey is. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, which doesn't surprise me because that would be the more sort of philosophical approach, right? And Sartre was, yeah, he's a novelist and a playwright, but he's a philosopher too. So he's going to want to explore those themes. Um, so yeah, so so I mean for me, I think that that's what it is. It's looking at a childhood and saying, well, does it change the way that we view the sort of innocence of a child going through, you know, a, a non-ideal childhood? Does it change the way that we look at these little traumatic outbursts, you know, or these tantrums? If we know that this person is a sort of like megalomaniac in creation and does – are those earmarks there? Like 
is that like maniacal tendency is that there and and I think that's really what's interesting about it it's the sort of complex tension between the future that we know he would become and the sort of innocence and sweetness and sort of patience that we're supposed to exhibit towards uh, a child in development it's it's funny though cuz I feel like I'm still struggling to find the meat and potatoes in this it's like and I I yeah, I'm yeah. And, you know, there's elements of this film that I really, really like, and there's elements that I really don't like. And it's kind of like, and I'm trying to reconcile mm. that a bit, you know. Yeah. And it's it's like, so I, I for instance, I, I, I really disliked the whole thing at the dinner table where he stabs his mother in the head. And it just seemed very out of left field and very melodramatic. And I just, you know. It was, yeah. I, I, it is. I, I didn't like that scene particularly. But it's it's like I'm kind of left with this with, because I, I don't know for a large portions of this film where it's going or what it's trying to do. So I'm kind of left feeling a lot of this. <coughs> and that's the easy get out thing with, say, when, you know, we're talking about, say, the girl next door and we can talk about structure, you know, because I, as much as I don't want every film to be structure, you know, Hollywood structure, I can look at that film and I can say, well, here's the problems with why, with what's not working mm. or what feels off with it. Whereas this one, I struggle to totally deem why I think something's off other than it feels very off to me that the kid just out of nowhere just stabs his mother in the head a bunch of times, you know, because things right. seem to happen so kind of at random and, you know, they're not kind of designed to build to any kind of crescendo point or anything like that and it, it just feels like I'm left kind of like well he started off the film as an asshole and he ends the film as a super asshole so <laughs> and and it's not like I'm feeling yeah. the film is trying to justify the fact that he's a fascist leader through the actions that happen so in the end what did I watch did I just watch mm. like a snippet of a, a life of someone who's an asshole yeah, maybe. And then maybe what we're supposed to look at is the sort of the sort of bifurcation, that tension between the adult asshole and then the child asshole. And when we look at someone who's a child asshole, and like you said, this is a child asshole who, yeah, he's an asshole, and yeah, he's in a, a situation that's not ideal, but he's not like – it's not Damien. He's not literally the devil But at incarnate. the same time, yeah, here's he my sucks. question he's, though, because he's so outwardly a problematic child, you know, right. are we – that seems also a little bit distancing and weird to me because it seems to almost suggest that uh, the child is just ready to be evil right from the get-go. Again, it's it's in a weird way, okay, you can get into the nature versus nurture debate on this. Is the film suggesting mm -hmm. that this child was just kind of born evil? Um, because, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like that thing. Hitler really loved his dog, you know, he didn't like having hmm. flowers, you know, in, in the house because he didn't like dead things, you know, I'm sure Hitler as a child was probably fairly cute and, you know, and probably did yeah. some things where people were like, oh, what an adorable child. I, I'm, so I'm kind of <laughs> like, is the film then suggesting that, um, that this kind of evil is kind of born into us and especially also with this ending where it suggests that he's you know the sort of the uh uh well i, I don't uh, a sort of bastard child is that also suggesting right. then that you know children born into some kind of un untraditional form are somehow more likely to be evil it's i i'm i find i really struggle to figure out what the film's overall points are with this 
Yeah, uh, I, I mean, a couple things. One, I too thought the dinner table sequence was a bit excessive. When I first saw it and he goes fucking crazy and starts stabbing, I was like, okay, that is a bit excessive. That kind of came out. It does jar a little bit. Um, so I, I get you on that one. Again, I think that this film works best in a similar way to when I was talking about a ghost story. Yeah. As a, a sort of, it is uncomfortable. Um, and it, it, it produces discomfort because of long takes, because it meanders, because it's slow moving. Um, and so what it does is I think it kind of just provides a series of images and, you know, stories and elements of, of uh, uh, themes, let's say. And then I think it is supposed to allow – to provoke thought. And I know that that like, you know, we, we've talked about this before. It's, you know, like you make fun of me sometimes where you're like, oh, so you'd love, you'd love to go to see the movie and then sit down and have a cup of coffee afterwards and talk about it. Absolutely. And to me, this film works – for that quintessentially. Now, you and I, obviously, we have the the luxury of, quote-unquote, having our coffee. Like, this podcast is the metaphor of us sitting yes. down after watching a movie and talking about it. But there are certain films that I think are, like, meant for that. Yeah. And I think this film is meant for that. And in that sense, it's kind of an intellectual exercise. It's, it's almost like a meditative experience because the questions that you're asking, I think, are the questions that are the most important from watching this film like what is this film saying is this film saying that god all bastard children are going to be bastard people like asshole people i mean obviously i don't think no, that's I, what the I, film I, I is saying i don't think the film and, is, and i know is you don't either but that. that's that's an in, no 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 but but that's an interesting question and i think that that saying that like is that what the film is suggesting and well no it's not but why is it not because of this but i think that the um the sort of evocation of that question and the other questions that you found sort of problematic. I think that that's what, what art house films can and, and ought to do and, and what the good ones do. Well, and I think, I, I think the bastard element is kind of a further suggestion of the fact that this kid has been born into uh, a world that was not really where he was kind of always slightly off center. Like, you know, and that he... He just he just needed to find the girl next door. He did man. need to find the girl like, next door, definitely. Call back to an episode that came out a couple of weeks ago <laughs> to everybody else, but that we talked about earlier today. So, you know, uh, but um, no, I think, um, I think the thing with it, though, is um, I think I'm, I think I'm kind of... I think I'm just I you know it's 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 interesting because I was thinking um a film that has some similar themes and ideas that I I that I I kind of more easily jibe with is say a film like we need to talk about Kevin. Um and in we need to talk about Kevin the framing mm. devices of it work to deal with a lot of the issues that I find that I'm uncertain about within this because we need to talk about Kevin in it. He is kind of portrayed as this kid who always seems like he was out to get the mother or was kind of born evil and cruel and mean. But you also realize that you're watching this through the prism of her remembrance of it. And it's really about her internal struggle of dealing with having had this child that's committed this terrible act. So it makes sense that in her mind, it feels like he's always been out to get her. And I think it's an interesting 
dis- depiction of motherhood in the sense of like you know you you love your children despite what they do despite the horrible things that mm-hmm. they do and so I feel like I can glean a lot out of this whereas I feel like this film kind of is allowed to exist on that that spectrum that I've always complained about in art house cinema, which is that we're just going to give you some stuff and you can talk about it and figure out if you think there's any meaning to it, (laughs) which is always something that bugs me. Like I like films to have cohesive ideas and and theses that they're putting out. And I get that that's not everybody's cup of tea, but, and I think that's what I'm slightly butting up against here, especially in a film that I think is really, really well directed and acted. I think I, I find it frustrating that I don't find something, more cohesive in it yeah and i can totally see that i mean kind of now shifting tack to that element of the direction and the visuals in the acting this is one of the things i wonder first of all it's a beautiful film it's it's like it's it's, it's absolutely beautiful yeah um it was a budget of five million i'm curious how this i mean this seems like a pretty i mean that's that's a small budget film but still that's a pretty decent sized budget for like an obscure adaptation or an adaptation of an obscure French short story by a first time director. And Robert Pattinson is probably by far the most marketable person in it. And he's not in it that much. I didn't even know he was in the movie when I first saw it. I thought it was Bernice Bergeau and um, Liam Cunningham and then some random boy. I didn't even know that Robert Pattinson was in it. Like, I don't think he's in the trailer. He just wants to hang out with all of Brady Corbet's friends. That's what this is all about. I want to hang out with Robert Pattinson and Brady Corbet now. Come on, guys. Hook it up. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's a, it's an absolutely beautiful film, and I think even though it's got a kind of a decent-sized budget for what I would expect, like for a first-time director with this um, type of source material, the thing that I actually think is maybe mm, underappreciated in the sense that we haven't talked about it, and when I read about it, you don't hear or I haven't read too much about it, is the music. Mm. Oh, the, the music's uh, brilliant. The, I loved the score for this. Yeah, it's like uh, – how would you describe it? It's like this jarring um, – it's like these these screeching these screeching strings that sort of like cut in and out. It kind of reminds me a little bit of um, some of the music in like Mother. But like how would you even describe the accompanying – soundtrack it's not even a soundtrack what is it it's like um i think it's a score but it's it's a very a score yeah into, it's a score that is rather than simply meant to um sort of underpin certain emotional elements in the film i think it's it's really acts as a character and a kind of real um i i i, th- I think it i think it's really there to kind of create a real mood you know, rather than just mm. simply underpin what's going on on screen. Because I think we have, we're, we're so used to, <coughs> oh, sorry, we're so used to these scores that are kind of these um, twinkly strings that are meant to kind of be like, oh, well, we'll just, um, it'll just, uh, these these characters feel emotion, so here's an infor- reinforcement of emotion going under what these say. I don't think this is it. Mm. I think the, the score is really meant to sort of set up a sense of dread and awkwardness and things a lot of the time. It's really there to kind of create a mood very quickly within the film. Mm. Yeah, and it's I read... a lot of times. Like, sometimes, well, the, sometimes the dialogue is... You can't really hear the dialogue because the score is really just... Uh, is, 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 is doing all the driving. 
Well, this is what I was just going to say. They actually did that on purpose. So the 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 score actually redlines quite a mm-hmm. bit. And so it's actually louder than it ought to be. Um, and they did that on purpose. Now, I have not seen this in the theater, obviously. But I would imagine in the theater, it, it would be so overpowering that it really would drown out some of the dialogue. And that was an intentional move um, on Corbet's part. And I don't remember what interview. Maybe I, I watched an interview on YouTube or I read it somewhere. But he talked about how that was done on purpose to sort of push the intensity of the score. Well, I will, uh, I will the say front. the thing that is good about this and reads very well for it is that everything feels very crafted and intentional. Like there's no point where you kind of feel like yeah. – we're not watching exactly what he wants you to be watching at all times. Like it, it's especially for, it's not what I would necessarily think of as an actor's first film either. Like it, you know, mm. it's very visually driven. It's very conceptually driven, which is what I tend to think of as like a, a filmmaker's first film. Um, mm. Whereas I tend to think of actors, they tend to make kind of, uh, you know, sort of acting exercises where it's right. lots of dialogue and people kind of, and it's it's very visually flat, um, and uh, it's often very melodramatic. But this felt very, this felt very much like you know, it, it was it was very much about trying to you know use the camera to have these uh, to to create a sense of mood and feel rather than just have everyone speak the you know speak exactly what was going on the whole time. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe, uh, fuck, I mean, he's probably working on this for a little bit. Maybe this is the reason why he was kind of just popping up in all of these bit parts for a couple of years, because maybe he was just too busy working on Though, this. Of course, Who and, and uh, you, you, you said it was written by him, but it wasn't just written by him. It was also written by his wife. Oh, that's right. They co-wrote it, didn't they? Um, who is a Norwegian filmmaker. Yeah. Um, I've never seen anything that she's done. But, um, you know, I have briefly scanned her filmography, so I feel like if she's down to adapt the Sartre short story, then maybe I got to give her the time of day, too, and check it out. If I can, I just want to say, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about my dream girl, my 2004 dream girl. I've never told you who my ultimate, my ultimate celebrity crush is. Who's that? Um, it's Kate Beckinsale. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. She, she's been my number one... Um, ever since I saw Laurel Canyon. So, and then Van Helsing just secured it for mm. me. Um, and, and since then, it just, it's not gone away. And she's in her 40s now, and she's still my number one. But, up in my top three on my Mount Rushmore is Bernice Bejo. Really? Um, oh my god. When I saw the artist, I was like, okay, who is that divine creature that is well, on I screen kind of right hate- now? I kind of hate the artist with another passion, so... Uh, I know you uh, do. So, yeah. I, I so, so nothing good can I, come, I don't, can I don't, come I don't from. I don't have anything against her. You know, I liked her in this. Um, I was far more excited to find out, to realize that she was in A Knight's Tale. Um, That's right, she is. She is She's the like the handmaiden to... The handmaiden, yeah. Um, to to <laughs> what's-her-name, who was supposed to be the next big thing and then never really became the next big thing. Yeah, what happened to her? What was her name? Sossaman. Yeah. Something Sossaman. So Shannon Sossaman? That sounds yeah. about right. Um, but yeah, and she's actually married to the director of the artist, um, being Bernice Bejo is. Yeah, Michael Havisnesis. This is like, I feel yeah. like this podcast is just one long example <laughs> of how I can't pronounce last names. 
<laughs> I think that's life, man. Which last is names ironic, are crazy. considering I have a last name nobody can pronounce. <laughs> yeah, Keir Stewart. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so, I mean, kind of wrapping things up, I mean, it does seem like, yeah, this is a film, it doesn't spoon-feed uh, themes or, or ideas to you, but at the same time, it does throw a lot of them out, you know, and um, it, it can veer maybe a little bit to, like, artsy-fartsy, um, you know, up-your-ass kind of, of pondering, which means that it's the type of film that I fucking love. But but even beyond that, um, I just I think it's beautiful. Ooh. Like some of the camera work in this, like that bit at the end, oh yeah, where um, they're in that big hall and it like starts like circling above the table yeah. and it's that huge long shot. I fucking I think that is exquisite. Well, again, this is the thing that I kind of struggle with because I can't fault a lot within this film. Like visually, I think it's really lovely. I think there's a a really great design to the images. I think it feels very controlled. Like even the thing that I like is I like when you have long takes, but it feels but it has a nice flow to it. And I and I think yeah. I think at all times the film has a nice flow and mood. I think the, all the acting aside from Stacey Martin, who is just not a good actress. I think, you know, all the acting is good. I, I feel like Stacey Martin is also in this because they just needed someone who could speak both French and English. Um, and and I, I think she was just off of that point where she, because she'd been a nymphomaniac, people were like, oh, she must be good because Lars von Trier cast her as the lead in this thing. So let's. So she got like a bunch of parts off the back of that. And I think people have only now just realized that she can't act. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of left a little bit, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it's that thing of once again, I'm kind of left a little bit cold. I'm not really right. sure I can quite find your level of enthusiasm in it, you know? I, it's, and, it, it, yeah, feels, yeah. it feels weird because I watched this last night and I already feel like I don't remember much of it. See, that's so interesting. After I saw it for the first time, I just like – it sat with me for a couple of days and I was just thinking about mm. it and how um, and how I thought it was just a very interesting portrayal of you know, the childhood of a, a, a would-be fascist. And I thought it was so interesting to kind of just think through some of the, suppose, the tensions and things like that. I suppose like, like my problem is I, I just have this disconnect from – the end result of the fascist leader and what I watched in the film. Because I feel like I've watched films about... I feel like I've watched... See, I find, say, something like American History X or Romper Stomper much more interesting in the way that it's dealing with the idea of how mm. people come, become wrapped up in fascist ideals. I'm not really sure I found this film really had much to say about how people get wrapped up in fascist ideals. Well, but again, yeah, but th maybe that's the point. Maybe if we don't think of it as trying to say this is how people get wrapped up in fascist ideals. But the film invites ideals, that to a certain extent rather... by calling itself childhood of a leader. Well, right. But rather than think of it like that, what it does is instead of looking forward, it takes us backward. And it says, let's look at the childhood of a leader and let's just kind of see the tensions that will emerge by by thinking about the future that that is his fascist future and then the past that is his sort of just – tantrums that he throws as a basic you know kid that's like living in a situation that's not so, ideal. so, I suppose, so rather so I suppose than if you look at it from the standpoint that it we're, we're taking it as read that this guy this kid is just going to be a fascist leader and then you look right. at it from the standpoint that 
here's how some of his frustrations of things that will manifest in his the horrible things he does once he's in that position of power where some of those spring from yeah yeah maybe yeah yeah and i think i think you know we love to we love to like think about like these grand ideas and you know we like to to universalize and we also like to sort of like find the reasons for things but rather than do that what if we just kind of like just sit with the images and then think about the sort of tensions that emerge. And I think that's what this film does. At least that's how I like to look at this film. And I'm sure that you ask a couple of different people and they're going to look at it differently. And that's, that's fine. Um, I think this type of film, it lends itself to a little bit more of an openness than say a film like, I don't know, uh, Tigerland does, you know, which I think has a pretty clear message on what it's trying to portray. Well, okay, so so what what was so obviously there were elements of this film you were really taken with. So give me give me something. Tell me tell me a detail because we're we're talking about this in quite broad strokes. So give me a detail. Give me something that really stuck with you afterwards. Uh, well, again, for me, largely it was conceptual. Um, I just thought it That's was fine. Really go, interesting. Go go with conceptual. But I give think, it to me. Well. No, it was for me, it was just kind of what we're talking about. It was really sitting with rather than this be a film that tries to justify and say this is why this uh, kid becomes a fascist. It was much more of, uh, in philosophical terms, what we would call like a phenomenological exploration, a sort of um, a sort of scientific, like microscopic study, just observation of the childhood. And that's what I think is so interesting that that it was just observing the childhood of this would-be fascist and then asking or or bringing together and and problematizing what that childhood means in light of the fact that he would become a fascist does it change the way that we view the sort of innocence of childhood does it make us say ah yeah that's that that makes sense because he's a fucking fascist does it make us think oh it's his parents fault um does it make us think, oh, it's his genetics fault and that there's that tension because he never actually got to know his father? And so even though the film doesn't show it, he clearly looks exactly like Robert Pattinson. So maybe, you know, in the in-between of when the sort of like uh, childhood uh, ends and then this this final, this little, I guess it's like an epilogue really, this epilogue happens, um, does he like realize that his dad wasn't really his biological father and that that is a break? So even though it doesn't, justify those things. I think the fact that it brings these things up and it allowed me to kind of think through it, I thought it was really interesting, especially as it was all done through something that I was just, that I thought was just shot and crafted, um, both visually and in terms of the audio, um, so, so immaculate. And so for me, that was really, it it just, it affected me. It kind of like, and I think it, it didn't affect me in my emotions so much as it did in my head, but you can't really separate the two. So I actually got really excited because of those weird tensions. Well, I, I suppose part of it is I really don't want to be the guy pouring cold water on that because it's not like I hated this right. film by any means. It's just right. I think I'm struggling to find your enthusiasm for it. And I'm and there's that part of me that yeah. wants to try and understand your enthusiasm for it. Um, but I mean, yeah, but I mean, do you know what I thought was really shocking about this film? Like that, it was like showing some little boy dick, man. Like, like that little boy, like hung <laughs> dong in this film. I was like, I was like, how's that legal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he's not like he's not like a baby. He's like he's like what 
10 or something like that? 11? I, I don't know exactly how old he is, but uh, yeah. I mean, how old how old is he in this film, do you think? 10, 11, something I like mean, that? I mean, I, 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 I don't know, to be honest. I mean, he can't be more than like 10 or 11. I mean, uh, I don't know what kind of the the legal ramifications of these things are, but it's like... It's it's Europe, man. They don't have this rules. Is a st- I feel like child pornography rules exist, and <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not, all I'm saying is I'm not sure if I was a ten or eleven year old boy, I'd be like, yeah, sure, Brady Corbet, show my dick. Well, you know, he uh, he saw Vigo Mortensen's dick in a couple of movies, and he's like, hey, if it's good for Vigo, it's I was good just for wondering, me. do you think it could be like CGI dick, like 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 the kid had like some <laughs> so, some oh. green screen underwear on, and they just like they just CGI'd a little penis onto it? If they did, then I would have made sure that I was in the green or that I was in the uh, the post room, and that I was like, hey, come on, man. You gotta pad my stats a little bit more than that. Okay, please. cool. Because that was that was really bad there for a second, Austin. It made you sound like you were saying I need to be in that room so I can see the little boy dick. No, no, the boy is in the room saying that he wanted his, you know, his. Well, he, he didn't do a, a very more, good job. No more leverage. Because I mean, you know, it was definitely. I know. Definitely looked like a little boy dick. <laughs> it was a little. Well, boy I'm just dick. saying, like um, that, that was. It yeah, was cold in that room. Yeah, I don't know what the rules are on that. To be honest. Uh, at all. But it's like, do you think Not it's like, because, do you think there's like, like, uh, there's like a kind of weird period, like, okay, so say like, from a certain point to a certain point, it's like, like, would it, it'd probably be weird if it was like a 13 year old or 14 year old boy, but because he's still pretty young, it's not as weird, is that a thing? I mean, I still thought it was weird when I first saw yeah, it. Yeah, I, I still think it's weird. Like, that would be, if I, if I met Brady Corbet, that'd be my first thing, I'd be like, was that little boy dick real? <laughs> Ah, I love it. I mean, I guarantee you there had to be some sort of parental permission. Definitely. Right? I mean, you know, if I was a parent and, like, I went to see the movie and, like, my kid's on screen and then just suddenly his dick is out, I'd be like, what the fuck did you do to my kid? Or what if that child actor was so committed to the role that he just, like, did it in the moment, you know? that He just, like, dropped trow and was and like, Corbin's trust like, use me. It. Use it. <laughs> Use it. That's the cut. Yeah, that's the take. That's the take. That's the take. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought he. I, what do? What do? And you're 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 someone who has a sort of uh, weird thing about child actors. So I mean, how did you how did you feel about him? At- um. Um. Yeah. Good. Uh. I, I. It's tough because I feel like he's very one note. Right. He's probably been directed and- that way. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's supposed to be one note, so it's hard for me to like really see like the nuance of it. It's not like, um, you know, it's not like I don't know. Fuck, what was the movie that we were just talking about? The childhood uh, actor. Logan. My brain just. Oh God, yeah, in Logan. Um, but she's kind of, she's not one note. She's got a couple of different. Uh, of different like <coughs> levels that she's playing with, but even still, she's kind of like. I think it's maybe easier for a kid to just be like grumpy and dickish. Maybe. I don't know. Then it is to like be charming and sweet. Like you could never have the levels that you have like Timothy Oliphant like we talked about in Girl Next Door where he's charming and he's sensitive. Is is that like our high watermark that we're comparing everything to now is Timothy Oliphant (laughs) in Girl Next Door? Oh, that's – 
that is the that is the benchmark for me for uh, for acting. Say we'll now. be we'll be watching. Um, I don't know. We'll be watching something like I don't know, on the waterfront. We're watching Marlon Brando. We're like, yeah, but is he Timothy Oliphant, the girl next door? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But like, take like Stranger Things, right? Like, like um, those kids have like levels, and they're not always perfect, and they're not always great. But what they're doing is really fucking hard for a kid that. I mean, doesn't know who they are, that's going to be dealing with, like, anxieties, and you're in front of a camera, and there's, like, self-awareness, and then you also have to, like, let go and be present, and you're saying words that aren't your words, and you're you're living in a world that isn't your world. That's not easy to do. It takes fucking skill, but I don't know. I mean, he's good. He's good, obviously, for what he's doing, but it's just, it's hard for me to say much more than that, because he's just so, like, hey, kid, besides getting your dick out, I want you to just be angry and an asshole to your family the whole yeah, time. Yeah, just stab your mom in the head a bunch of times. Say, say he is yeah. screaming. I wasn't he screaming, like, I'm not going to pray anymore. Yeah, uh, so he hates God, he hates his parents, uh, and he's going to pull his I guess it's like, true that's... what, like, the conservatives say then. It's like, you know, a lack of God leads to fascism. I. Maybe that's what the film is Maybe trying to say. Maybe that is what the film is. Maybe Brady Corbet is a is like actually like deep down just a closet conservative, and he's like slowly like siphoning all these subliminal conservative messages through through this movie. <laughs> oh great! It's I like, can't wait to see like, what he does it's next. It's like have you know you know uh, marriage should be between a man and a woman, and they need to and and the child should be in wedlock. <laughs> That's right, because if you don't, then this, this is, what, is happens. what happens. Hitler, your child should pray; otherwise, he'll stab you in the head. Yes, yeah. Well, now, what is he doing next? Does he have? Uh, does he have a film? I, I love that. You know, you've you've professed yourself as some great sort of Brady Corbet lover, and yet you're asking me what he's doing next. Um, he's not got like anything on the acting slate, as far as I can see. Uh, he's not acted yeah. in anything since 2014. Um, and yeah, there's nothing listed uh, either. But this is what I mean. Apparently, he could just wander around, fucking doing whatever he wants. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> who knows how he makes money? He just swans around being Brady Corbet, married to a hot Scandinavian filmmaker, and they just, you know, they and and they just read philosophy books and decide every now and again they want to make a movie. Uh, did I? tell you already that i'm jealous of his life uh, uh, yeah no no you know <laughs> and then when he does decide to make a movie he gets uh he gets best director at this at the venice film festival i know that's so good man um yeah so i mean i'm looking at his imdb too and it doesn't show anything in production so i have no freaking clue i mean well actually let me see oh, what I'm he's sure got we'll as a director oh European he's got at some point you know and everyone would be like he does hey, corbet's in this for five minutes he does he has a he has a film that he's directing in pre-production that he wrote that stars jude law and your favorite actress stacy martin uh, god how is stacy martin she's also in like um he's she's also in uh fuck what's his i can't say his name the artist director his navigious She's yes. in his Michael Michael Hisnavizhes. He's he. She's in the film that he that he'd made that came out this year, all about where she's like some woman who had an affair with Godard. Oh, I'm I'm guessing she's probably see that. naked in it because that's again why people hire her. Well, I kind of want to see that. That sounds I, I, good. You don't, but yeah, Austin, so you want to see Stacey Martin naked? You don't have to watch that. No, I yeah. I mean, I've seen her naked. It doesn't. It doesn't mean anything to me right now. Um, but the new film that he's doing um, 
The storyline is it's an unusual set of circumstances brings unexpected success to a pop star, and it's called Vox Lux. Okay. It's a drama musical. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting. That'll be interesting. Uh, 2018. Okay. Well, we can all look forward to that. Sweet. So yeah, um, I would recommend go check it out. Um, I like you said, not... I wouldn't not recommend it. You know, I'm kind of like, hey, you know, you might get something out of this. I'm not totally sure I'm the right person that this that that's going to be in the bag for this film to begin with. You know, so I mean, I'm not necessarily sure. You know, I think it's a really, really well directed film, and in in the same way that I say liked Raw and I liked. Um, I think it was at least one other film that came out this year. Oh, The Lure. I liked The Lure. They're films that I'm kind of like, I'm not sure that I felt like there was some cohesive thing to this, but I think it's really well made, and I'm really curious to see what else this person does. Yeah, for sure. Sweet, man. So, uh, that is, this is the end of our pre-recorded episode, so uh, hopefully as of next week we will be returning to our regularly scheduled programming, and I just realized that I have not in any way figured out what film we shall be watching, uh, because obviously it'll be a while from now that we're actually watching this film, so uh, without further ado, I am going to decide, I'm just going to Come up with something off the top of my head. Uh, most likely what okay. we will be doing is an episode which also is a big, long catch-up of reviews of films that um, I've seen since um, uh, since we last recorded. So in the meantime, cool. uh, uh, the film we will be watching in February is Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas, really? Yep, okay, we're going to watch Cloud Atlas. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So look forward to that. Um, and uh, in the meantime, uh, please like and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, check out idigthismovie.com. You can check out my work at kirsiewood.com. Uh, check out my Instagram, Breaking Point Flicks. Um, Austin? You can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Okay, and so we will – this is going to be very funny because we're basically not going to record now for a little over a month, but uh, it won't mean a thing to you guys. But for you, we'll see you next week. Exactly. All right. All right.